Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there. And enjoy the new episodes of And The Writer Is. This podcast is brought to you by CSAC, an industry leader and innovator in music performance licensing. For over 80 years, CSAC has established strong relationships in the creative community by investing in the careers of its top tier affiliated songwriters and film and TV composers. To learn more about CSAC and its affiliated relationships with songwriters and composers, Visit csac.com forward slash origins to learn more. Again, visit csac.com forward slash origins. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's multi-generational, multi-platinum producer-songwriter has excelled in helping define artists' careers. But he doesn't just record in the studio and leave the rest to history. He maintains decade-long relationships, mentors, and nurtures the artists with whom he works. His talents qualified him to take the highest-profiled executive positions in the music business, and his perseverance qualified him to pursue his entrepreneurial endeavors in our ever-changing industry. Few like him can oscillate from boardroom to studio without missing a beat. He has worked with legendary artists like Sting and Hall & Oates, but nothing is more impressive than his dedicated partnership with Pink. Also a Philly native, this guest is a decorated activist for his work with autism because he does good things for humanity. And the writer is Billy Mann. Well, uh, that was an awesome introduction. I'm not sure how to respond. But... And, you know, you just did. That's perfect. Um, I mean, let's, let's, uh, I always like telling, you know, the story of how somebody becomes uh, a human uh, who's born into a family and then ends up actually making music that everyone gets to hear. And so let's start in the beginning, Philly. Well, I would say Philadelphia is famous for a lot of things. Um, I'm a big Eagles fan, so uh, <laughs> shout out. Um, 
go birds. Uh, but um, it's a tough place. It's a really loving place, and it's a really tough place. And I always reference back to the fact that it was voted the friendliest city in America and was the murder capital in the same year. Huh. So I think that's like, and that was in a way the environment that I grew up in. Um, uh, I'm the youngest in my family of three. Um, and I was really untethered street kid. Um, you know, when you drive through the city and you see like a little kid on a stoop somewhere smoking a cigarette and you're like, it's 1130 at night. Where is his parents? Like that was me, <laughs> my friends. Where were your parents? Um, my parents split up when I was little. My mom worked two jobs. She was an educator. Um, it was interesting because Philly is a very musical place. It's a very song-driven place, soulful place. So like Linda Creed, who's one of the legends who wrote The Greatest Love of All and a ton of other classics, she lived there. Obviously, Gamble and Huff, the history of the sound of Philadelphia. But, um, but I went to high school in the projects in South Philly at Kappa, and our class was, it was fucking insane. The talent was just dripping through the halls, the roots, Christian McBride, Joey DeFrancesco. I sang in gospel choir with Boys to Men. Tamika Patton was a gospel singer. It was like, I, I, I look back and I would say that the level of talent and camaraderie was, it was... It was special. So Philly for me, and then on the studio session side, like Steve Wolf, the drummer, who does like tons of records. We played since we were 12. Uh, Adam Dorn, who you know from, uh, we he was bass player, and he was like the most ridiculous musician you ever heard in your life, like when this he was is your high 13. School? These are all the kids that, Kurt Rosenwinkel, like we played Battle of the Bands. He's like an amazing guitarist. But we used to do Battle of the Bands where basically I assembled kids from the city and we would go to private schools that had like battle of the bands with money at the end of it and we would just come in Clean and up. just yeah, yeah it would like they would come in they play you know um i don't know they played like police covers or you know i'll stop the world and melt with you it was just super and we yeah. came in with like two horn players gospel singers like every like wolf playing drums adam playing bass clayton sears the guitar player he He's on tour with Jay-Z, I think, last year. I mean, it's like, and we were all young. Why is, you know, there are a lot of big cities, and there are mm. a lot of big cities that have projects, and there are a lot of big cities that have mm. diversity. Um, you know, the the North doesn't always have diversity in their big cities. You know, what is it about that area that was creating that kind of creativity? I mean, it's still, listen, it's, I think um, Philly is, it's tough Everybody's in close proximity. You in, the, in South Philly, you could be in the Italian neighborhood that's right butt up against the African-American neighborhood that's right next to the Irish neighborhood. That's, I mean, I think it's, it's not easy, but, I mean, sorry, but when you're from Philly, you're going to obsess over the Eagles. But what I will tell you is that when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, which was actually for the city, in some ways, one of its most romantic moments a team that had never won everybody celebrated together like yeah. i i literally saw police officers dancing with yeah. like homeless people it was nuts in fact elvis duran um called me and he's like can you be the on the street correspondent and so like i was calling in to elvis's show like telling the story 
But Philly I mean, is a place. Ba- also, the romance, the romance of that game. Not to get into yeah, football, oh no, but, but to it's... have a backup quarterback, you know, win the MVP yeah. and all the things that happen. This is I like mean, we are amazing. losing yeah. songwriters yeah. by the second right now. Yeah. They are completely tuning yeah, exactly. out. <laughs> I'm a Cubs fan, so I had my moment, <laughs> right. you know, ten years ago of, of like that that amazing. Right. But know, it's good. Listen, nostalgia. it's a, you learn how to fight in Philly, yeah. literally, and you get that mentality and for that i you know whether it's with alicia or any of the guys that i know from philly that i came up with like we're all fighters what what was your instrument growing up um guitar was really my instrument i played i started with violin school and then trombone baritone horn which converted into valve trombone and i i was kind of terrible at all of them still terrible at all of them what you know i'm always <laughs> That's an important lesson right there also is that I think a lot of people think you have to be proficient at an instrument and, mm. and that's not really how artists work, you know. Artists use the tools they have and they create art using the tools they have. Yeah. So if those are your tools, that's yeah, amazing, and I, you know. Well, I could play by ear yeah. and um, I could figure it out. I was really good in, in school with uh, mm. solfeggio. That was probably one of the, the best ways for me to learn music theory was through solfeggio. To have the, you know, those kinds of instrumentalists and musicians around you, mm. were you intimidated or were you encouraged? No, it was encouraging. I mean, we were all, I mean, everybody was in their respective lanes, you know. Uh, Joey DeFrancesco was also in school, which is like, and I remember seeing him play when he was, I guess he was 14 and he came in. If you don't know who he is, he's one of the most incredible jazz musicians. And he was this kind of rotund jolly kid that came in and could barely touch the foot pedals on the piano and all the music teachers that gathered us around and um they mr king our teacher who if you ask any of the guys from boys to men like he was this very very um overweight guy who would preach the bible and smoke cigarettes in class (laughs) and yell at people and they like gathered all the students to see joey come in and play and he's you know he's a prodigy then he still is but i remember just everybody being so happy seeing someone just crush it and he sat on the piano and just and he like closed his eyes and then played it like a typewriter and everybody freaked out did the older generation philly people specifically gamble and huff were they recognizing you know here are these Mm -hmm. legend hall of famers were they recognizing what was happening who was recognized you know all those people are breaking out of that area Mm -hmm. um not because everyone is that entrepreneurial someone notices all of these people and starts to say hey why don't you come in uh to a studio or this band i want to sign or you know this person i want to sign and this you should come to new york you should come to la Mm. somebody's coming in and cherry picking these people you guys or somehow some even if it's you guys as a as a group of people one of you guys is leading Hey, let's get out of here because that's crazy for all those people to succeed. At I one don't place. think it was. I don't. I, let me say this: Grover Washington Jr. was my mentor. He took me in. I was part of a inner city Philly music foundation outreach thing. Um, he was amazing to me. Uh, I think um, Philly International and Sigma, uh, not Sigma. Um, I just lost myself. Uh, the studio. The studio in Philly, and I'll remember the name later. But the basically, one in North Philly, the one no, that doing... it was it's in in downtown. It's just uh-huh. where Gamble uh-huh. and Huff made all these yeah. records, and David Bowie recorded uh, there. I think he did Young American there. But 
it was kind of, it was shady. I mean, Philly, the whole Philly thing was super shady. I like ran coffee at the studio. Um, and sometimes I carried, people said, can you go pick up this whatever? And I was carrying bags and I thought it was coffee. But there's I a difference you know? from most, <laughs> most people who play in their high school bands. Yeah. They're not thinking, oh, there's a recording studio in, in this city. I should go and work in this studio. Somebody mm. says to you, Somewhere along, is it was it Grover? Is somebody says Grover to you like, "Hey, very, you should. You're really talented. Mm. Why don't you come and see what a recording studio is like?" Mm. Is that who does that? I mean, I was always obsessed with it, all of it anyway. Yeah. And I was, I'm a total like, I love the I, the time that I spend with working with artists that are today's stars. Yeah, it's really awesome. But the time I've spent working with the legends is is priceless to me. Sure, and um, because the wisdom of co-writing with Burt Bacharach is profound and lasting and not to take away from any of the newer writers but it's like a different our craft has changed and the way we write with each other has changed and um you can have nine people there's 13 people wrote on the sicko record or whatever you know it's like it's there's a lot more people it's a lot less one-on-one um, but some of that's also different because, um, yes, the process has changed. Yeah. But if you're writing with Bert, and then let's say somebody else produces it, mm. you know, then you guys were still the songwriters, right. and they were the producers, right, right, right. So the difference now, on some level, is also maybe credit where credit should always have been given, mm. which is really hard for me as a songwriter to say. You know, on the other hand, I also think songwriters should get production. So I think that it works both ways. Well, right. I mean, but, the question is, is, but but I'm just saying, like having a lot of names on a song, maybe just including pe- people who were always part of the same process and mm. just weren't getting quote songwriting credit. I mean, I, that's know? like a philosophically. I think yes, and at the same time, I think you know, if you look at a great producer, like you know, somebody went to David Kirschenbaum or somebody went Quincy to Jones. Quincy I mean, Jones yeah. and they had a song and it was a piano and a vocal. And then they took that and they created this incredible landscape around it. Now, by if we invert today's experience in terms of what a producer gets and participates, why doesn't Quincy Jones get 50% of the copyright up front? Yeah. Because well, he took a top line, arguably, totally. and then he created thriller or he created whatever landscape around it i don't know if people think of i think the 50 50 thing on music versus song you know top line often is has to do with when a beat comes in first right versus coming after but you know uh we interviewed glenn ballard and and Mm -hmm. man in the mirror Mm -hmm. is a song that doesn't include michael jackson or quincy jones Mm -hmm. there's no way that in 2020, both of those people would wouldn't have, have taken 100%. at least 25% each. 100%. You know? But that's, I think that's also part of what we are, you know, we are left with, I mean, don't get me wrong, I th- publishing is super valuable, but when you are left with, I don't want to say the scraps of the revenue, but if you look at the disparity that exists and part all the work mm-hmm. you've been doing, and uh, you know I've been trying to help out, and everybody's helping out to balance the scales, a lot of that is because 
everybody's trying to hold on to something. And also, a lot of that unraveled when some of the artists who were already making tons of money showed up and said, oh, now I want writing credit for this or that. Yeah. And and that's sort of like a a silent yet not so silent secret. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it was certainly a giant ego grab. We can get into that later. But... <laughs> You know, so you, you're in Philly, you work with legends. I mean, Burt Bacharach, come on. Well, no, that was a, that's that a, was later. That's a particular, yeah, that was later. But uh, but that's a, you know, those being around those kinds of legends ever in your life is obviously really important in the development of your talent yeah, and your skill set. Um, but what's the thing that moves you from being, I'm a runner mm. in a studio to, um, do you mind if I sit behind the board or mm. can I show you this song? Well, I mean, the guys that were there wouldn't even remember. Like Joe Tarsio who's like a legendary engineer in Philly who did every record, you know, probably the OJs and Patti LaBelle and yeah. Bowie for sure. Um, I was just happy to be there. I didn't know any, I didn't know how anything worked. I didn't. I remember looking at the patch bay and just thinking, "Man, this is just spaghetti." Of Do you understand stuff. a patch bay now? Yeah, okay. but at the time, I, I definitely <laughs> I didn't. Mean, I still and I was, but it was also. I just wanted to be around yeah. it, and I got really motivated. But everybody was a hustler. I just decided like drugs was not my thing for me. It was. It was a lot of people I grew up with are no longer with us. Um, a lot of people went to jail and now are no longer with us. It was. It's. It's a, it was a very um, – I just wanted to get out of Philly. Yeah. I like – it's a city I love being from Philly, but I, I wouldn't live there again. Uh, when did you uh, – interesting that, you know, for all of us that leave home, that we all still have this pride, though, for home. You say you yeah. never lived there, but, you know, the <laughs> Eagles win and you're sitting – And I'm there. I'm in yeah, Philly. you're in there, you know. Yeah, I mean, some of it is I think we all – we – are raised in whatever way we're raised and you have your own um you look back at the experience of your childhood and some things you just want to leave it where it is and and for me i think the harder part was um i didn't fit in into a lane i wasn't like if there were you know you look at uh there's this rapper cicero who has this song called good to know and in the video there's like it's like everything that everybody experiences when you're at a certain age. It's like the cool kids and the hipsters and the jocks and the nerds and whatever. And I was never in any lane um, until I went to Kappa and then I met other musicians and I sort of understood myself. But I realized um, Philly was like I just didn't fit anywhere except it was just lots of chaos around me yeah. and I was on my own and I was so happy to get out. But I... I don't think I would have been able to move the needle for myself in any way if I didn't have that experience growing up that made me self-sufficient. So that I I would raise my hand first and say, oh, tell me what to do in the studio. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll do whatever whatever you need me to do. I'll mop the floors. I just want to be around it. Uh, When did you start writing songs? Um, I started when I was five. My sister Karen, um, who who was an amazing woman and still one of my best friends um, wrote terrible poetry about um, a boy she had a crush on and I could play four chords and then I'd start playing and I'd start singing her words and I could, I mean, it was ridiculous, but I could harmonize. What was the first song called? It was, uh, literally the lyrics were, sometimes I wonder how I really feel. Is it an infatuation or is it love that's real? And pretty much you could probably write the rest with auto, uh, yeah. Uh, text on your phone, but um, but what was fun is that 
I loved singing with my sister, who, uh, not a great singer, sorry, care. Um, but I loved harmonizing. Yeah. And um, one of my sons now, my younger son, uh, has to harmonize everything. Um, and I was like that. So I think that got me into the idea. My mom um, wrote poetry and was a school teacher, English teacher, and always encouraged that. And I think I had that bug with her. And then when I had times in like middle school, I didn't have any friends or I struggled to connect. And I went school to school to school because I got in trouble. Um, Songs let me sort of articulate my longing. And um, and it was... Were you playing these songs for people? Um, or were they songs that you were writing and then it's sort of like... No, I I, I would... I, I When I was a teen, when I got in my teenage years, like 15, I started to play for people. But Steve Wolf, who was the drummer I was telling you about, and yeah. Adam Dorn, and I'm telling you, these guys, they're all amazing musicians. They were the guys that I play stuff for. And then when we got older and we were doing the Battle of the Band Carnage, um, we would play original songs. That was the other thing. And everybody else did covers, but I wrote all the songs that the band did, which was like the other sort of secret sauce. Is that the when did you re- first record that music? I mean, I honestly, we used to take a boombox with another boombox. Yeah, two So, yeah, and like we would <laughs> overdub ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. it was ridiculous. Yeah. But we'd basically record on the boombox, um, play like a bass. If, if, especially it was just me and Wolf. I'd play like a terrible bass line and he'd play mm. like a maraca. And then we would play over that and then he'd play uh, drums and I'd play guitar. And then we would sing and I'd sing like into the boombox and then we'd fly it over and I'd harmonize. And of course, it sounded like just that. and yeah. then vague recollections of whatever we were doing. And that I was just into that recording process. And then I saved up for uh, over a year to buy a Tascam Porta 1, the oh, cassette thing, which today is like free on your iPhone. Just, there's an app that's, you know, Sergeant Pepper's quality for <laughs> recording yeah. your phone for nothing. But I remember that was when I started like nerding out and learning about panning, bussing, and sort of the the – the crayon version of what a patch bay is and everything else. Did you send out your demos? Did you have hope oh for these God. songs? I, I mean... Did you have an idea of, okay, I'm recording songs, these guys are great, everyone who thinks thinks <laughs> their high school band's the greatest, you know, are you thinking, okay, I'm, I, I've am i got it, or are people telling you, I, yeah. hey, man, you got it, or will you get a real job? You know I mean, what's so what, funny what's is, like, I, I never had a plan B. Uh-huh. I tried so hard to find a plan B. I took the LSATs after school. Oh, you did? And I had been, I I entered the testing room still, how do I put this? I was still like, I was pretty hammered from the night before on purpose, just so I'd sandbag it. Yeah. Um, Perfect. Not, uh, you know, (laughs) I look back on it and think, why did I even do it? But like, I just, I remember sitting in that room and yeah. still like, you know, uh, I, I I couldn't figure out what the plan B was. And I didn't really have the intrigue for the business as much as I just, I wanted to get ahead. I wanted to get somewhere. And then I, I, I had to deal with a lot of, you know, shitty management, 
issues, gangsters, all kinds of crazy. Like, it's a it's tough. What's your favorite man- shitty manager gangster story? Oh God. Um, let me start with the ending, so there's no spoiler. Okay. He wound up dead in a river. Okay. By the way, that's the whole story. No, no. Yeah. Uh, what, what happened was... Were I, you the murderer? <laughs> no, no, no. I have, no. I have all kinds of no, questions I, now. I told you that... I don't know like, where this conversation is going to go, but no, I'm it's feeling a, it is like a, I might be complicit in It's this. a tragic story, and I'm going to speed through it, but basically, um, Monique Harkham, her brother Stacy Harkham, was a great musician yeah. in Philly. We went to high school with Monique. She sang in the band. She lives yeah. in... Uh, I think Belgium now. She sings professionally still with her husband. Um, and her brother introduced me to her manager, a guy named David Suckle. That was his name. And he went to University of Pennsylvania. He was like a totally, you know, stand-up guy who looked like just, you know, Schmelke, the graduated from an Ivy League school, who was a good hustle. And he was great. And he was really bright and he was telling me all the stuff we're going to do. And I trusted him and I went into the studio and and it was Sigma Sound, actually. Um, and I recorded with, I recorded a demo and it was cool. And then he was like, hey man, you know, my, uh, I left my wallet. Do, do you mind if I borrow your credit card to go to the city? I'm going to meet all these people and whatever. And I was like, I just, he had paid for the studio. So I was happy to just say, here's my credit card. And, uh, and then he was gone. And took my credit card. <laughs> and you, back in the day, it was like pagers. So if you, you couldn't call anybody, but you paged them, and then you had codes at the end of the page. So if you were like, your number, and then you put 911, it was an emergency. If you put your, and you had codes for stuff, and people had codes for everything from like weed to meet you about back or whatever, based on numbers. So I 911'd him a million times. But the long and the short of it is, Visa Fraud Division called and said like, somebody's going crazy with your card and he i the way we found him was he had checked into the warwick hotel in philly under my name and i called and asked for myself and got him on the phone and what it turned out is that he had like a terrible gambling problem and it it it, it's complicated but i think his brother is the producer of american hustle the movie Oh, crazy. Uh, so I think his name great? is Richard Suckle, and we have mutual friends, and we've never met or spoken. I've ne- I haven't spoken about this, but that was that was the most traumatic one because it was like betrayal on so many levels. Yeah. But uh, but then I got <laughs> out so of crazy. Yeah, and then I and then I lived in my car, and then I got out of Philly. I was like, I I I told my mom. I I remember I used to smoke. Um, and I was just, I would sit, my mom smoked and we'd sit and talk and I was like, I just have to get out. And I had a, um, an old Nissan Sentra and <laughs> I packed the <laughs> trunk with, um, canned Chef Boyardee beef ravioli, like a huge crate of it, which you can eat cold. I don't recommend it, but I lived off of it for a long, long time. And, um, where did you go? New York? I went everywhere. No, from Philly, I I drove, I lived across America based on climate and I would play on the street and... How was your, you know, when you left home, what was your relationship like with your sisters and your your mom and, and, you know, your dad, even though they weren't together? No, my sister, my brother and I remain, we remain connected and close. Um, But I, but we weren't then. I I was really, I was on my own. Yeah. Um, They had left before and my 
my relationship with my family was as good as it could be. I don't want to say it was yeah. bad. It was more like, um, it wasn't like, we're here for you, honey. It was more yeah. like, you know, I had to go and fend for myself. But it was like that most of the time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. This podcast is brought to you by CSAC, an industry leader and innovator in music performance licensing. For over 80 years, CSAC has established strong relationships in the entire community by investing in the careers of its top-tier affiliated songwriters, film, and TV composers. CSAC uses a selective and partnership approach with its affiliates, maintaining a small base, which enables them to deliver a high level of responsiveness and service. CSAC is also proud of its long history serving music users throughout the country and now represents over 1 million songs across all genres of music, as well as music from hit movies, television shows, and sporting events. CSAC is more than just a PRO and has expanded its business into additional rights categories and markets. They are also building a global licensing platform through a joint venture, Mint Digital Services. To learn more about CSAC and its relationships with affiliated songwriters and composers, visit csac.com forward slash origins. How soon after leaving Philly did you end up, um, you know, I don't know, what where, where are we at year-wise? This is in the late 80s. So Girl, yeah, between late '80s mm. and mid '90s, there's a lot of growth that gets from you from that to mm. getting a record deal as an artist. Mm. How is it that you develop uh, from being a, a somebody in a car to somebody who gets a record deal? What is that process for mm. you? I mean, there's one particular moment that. Uh, first of all, I got so burned by this experience, and Grover Washington Jr. and his wife Christine and their lawyer at the time, who's probably still around, a guy named Lloyd Remick. He was like the only game in town in Philly. Um, but they were really good to me and like encouraging. And then I left. Um, and the challenge that I faced really, because I didn't come from a family with money and I didn't have like my dad wasn't an executive in the business or any of that stuff. Um, I didn't know how I was going to monetize music. Like I loved music and I wanted to play, but the concept of making money was this blue sky, you know, and I'm going to have a private plane and all this, all the other shit that you dream about. I just wanted to 
just do music and I just want just like when I was working yeah. in Sigma Sound I just I didn't care I would do anything I just want to be around it so you were just um, doing odds and I did whatever jobs. odd jobs yeah. but I played a lot on the street and I would go if I like I remember I went to I was in in the car so I went by climate so if when it was winter obviously I wasn't going north and I went I remember going towards um Asheville and I loved it there and so I stayed there for like three weeks and I picked up a job I would you know bus tables or I just did whatever and then I'd play in whatever the town center would be um but eventually I found my way to San Francisco and in part because it's where my sister lived and I think I longed to have somebody from my family just know what I was going through and my sister at the time it was just after the big earthquake and um and I was really it was hard. Like I, I was eating food out of a can, sleeping in my car, um, for years. At that point, it was. It was at that point. It was about a year and a half, uh-huh. and I just remember. I, I just remember finding a place with like six people. It was somebody, some guy who graduated from college. His mom had owned a house and said, "If you fix it up and flip it, I'll you can." have a piece of the house and you can live there and rent rooms. So it was in Bernal Heights, which Bernal Heights today is like like magnificent <laughs> neighborhood. But then it was like gangs, gunfire, gunfire every night. I stayed in Hunter's Point, um, which Hunter's Point is still like, it's, it's a tough mm-hmm. area. But um, I couldn't afford the rent. I had worked, I worked at a futon shop. I was fired for sleeping on the job because I would play at clubs at night. <laughs> and uh working at a futon shop yeah i know is, it's is so uh, <laughs> you know it's when you're, the futon when you're shop. home when you're homeless <laughs> or no, you're no. living in a car and you're right. working at a futon shop like that's that's the smartest occupation <laughs> you except i like sleeping on the job literally literally sleeping. <laughs> yeah you're like and somebody comes in you're like look it works for me it'll work for you <laughs> it's like uh, it's a great proof of concept well anyway but i so i was like <laughs> look how comfy this is it's hard as a rock it's better than a car it's a great sales pitch <laughs> um yeah i don't think they saw it that way they <laughs> yeah, were no, like sure uh, they did not um no but i i had an ultimatum from the guy i was renting the place from and he's like you need to bring in whatever the it was i think 280 bucks um i was in a walk-in closet like a huge walk-in closet like the size of this room it had one small square window and i had a futon and just like a bag of my stuff but it was clean and it was good and he's like you're gonna have to get out and i didn't have a job at the time and i went to fisherman's wharf and i was playing covers and i thought i'm just gonna stay here until i make the money and the first day i made like barely made 20 bucks and i was like i'm fucked yeah and I slept over and it was like the scene out of a movie where the cop like hits the baton against the bench. Like I had to move benches and I remember just freaking out. And then, um, and then the next morning I was up early, I had a coffee from like McDonald's or something and I was sitting there, um, and I saw there wasn't a lot of foot traffic, but it's beautiful. The wharf. I mean, it's just a stunning view and there's like a couple walking down the, and you could tell that it was like, um, you know, if you grow up around people as a street kid, you can suss out pretty and I was pretty fast who people are. And they were clearly like newlyweds with shiny gold bands and like big smiles. And they looked like a Land's End catalog couple mm-hmm. and they were walking down. And so I started playing and thought, oh, maybe they'll stop and I'll get my coffee paid for. And they stopped. And then I started talking to them. I was like, well, what, you know, what, what brings you here? It's early in the morning. She's like, 
sure enough, they had gotten married. They were jet lagged. They got up early in the morning. They're taking a stroll. So I asked them how they met. There was nobody, nobody else was around, and they told me and had a really cool conversation. And I said to them, um, you know, I'm writing songs. How about I write a song about the two of you in two minutes, in five minutes or less for $5. And if you don't like the song, you don't have to give me anything. And uh, they were like, sure. So I basically, I had like a, I don't know, it looked like a legal pad. And I said, tell me. And they told me their story. And I started writing just rhyming words, like listing, and you know, like rain, plane, Spain, whatever I could from everything that they were saying. And if they said a name, it's yeah. like, I think her name was Paige or something. So I wrote age and rage and what, I don't know. I just would write as fast as I could. And then... I sort of said, okay, give me a second. Then I sat and I played whatever one, four, five, two chords that I put together. And I sang my guts out. And they gave me 20 bucks. And I was like, wow, that's really deep. And then there was another couple like walking down. And you know, the first thing I asked them, I was like, oh, so how did you guys meet? And I like made a killing that day. And I made, I don't know, 400 bucks or something. And I I knew four four hundred bucks tripled your catalog. I, well, no, but well, eventually it got kind of stupid because I like had like my three set chord yeah. progressions. Yeah. Should a former yeah. client come by, yeah. and uh, and I had my like rhyming words, and also people's stories, their love stories in general. They're they're not all the same, but they the themes of finding somebody or never thinking you're going to find someone or happening to meet someone through a friend. Of course, today it'd be like. A song called App. But the point is, is that I really found myself understanding that I'd be okay, that music would, I'd be okay. And what an interesting way to learn about writing songs because you, you actually can see what's working in real time. You can literally play the song <laughs> and see which things that people react to, even if they're excited to see it because it's about them. Right. Part of what, I was talking to an artist yesterday and I said, your job, you know, mm. is to have a conversation with the audience. Right. You need them to feel like you're that it's about it's about them. Mm. So if it's a room of 20,000 20, people versus two people, right. the the lyric is actually the same to make it them feel like it's about them. If it's about finding someone and it's about meeting someone through a friend and right. it's about all these right. themes, a room of 20,000 people also feel like you're talking to them if you do your job well right. as a songwriter. Right. So or, that skill set is actually really valuable. Well, I think it's I think it's that skill set, but I also think it's understanding the value of that skill set. Like uh -huh. that's yeah. the part that totally. I did that this totally. all like happened at once and it's the you know in adulting terms it's like the monetization of content, but at the time it was like what I'm doing has intrinsic value and it also can help propel me. I can, I can build a life on this. And that was always my goal. It was, um, I just, success, I realized, and I was given this advice early on in music is the ability to continue doing music. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I made it to the mountaintop. Um, I'm a big success. It's like, it's about loving the whole mountain. And that experience, I, it's consistently a part of my day-to-day -day vocabulary is, that the valuation of what you're doing in that moment not getting lost or or frankly being taken for granted i mean that's probably the most important lesson that we'll get out of today is is, is even the idea that you know process is 
being a songwriter is about process. It, you will, you when you finally get your number one song, it's it's still a process. Mm. You know, you still watch the numbers go up by the minute mm. and down by the minute. It's never you never get there. There is no there in the music business. It's well, always a if process. you're smart, you know that there's no there. Yeah. If you're smart, you know that there is a moving target that basically can enslave you. Mm. It can trap you. Um but it never empowers you. It 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 robs you of your power because there without getting too esoteric, but it, in order for there to exist, it needs to be defined by the contours and judgment of others. Because there is isn't there subjective? I mean, isn't the concept of what there is subjective? And how many songwriters I meet and know that don't realize that they're successful. I've never seen a community of so many talented people do such a great job of making one another feel like they're not successful. It is utterly, it's not ironic. It's, it's, and I think it's actually better today than it was in the past. Yeah, I think this, I think this generation yeah. is, is, you know, and I, I'd like to think, uh, we talk about draft classes and yeah. I'd like to think sort of our draft classes, be, maybe because of social media, that there's a lot of cheerleaders. Yeah. I mean, listen, so I there's always really, going to be that. But you can see, you even if somebody doesn't believe it, they're right. still out there saying, hey, congrats, blank. Right. Right? They're still liking the post. They're still right, doing so. There's, a- some, there's some conversation versus, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, you know, you're still having to call somebody to say, hey, congratulations. Mm. That's already a whole lot more effort than mm. liking a post when somebody says, ah, my song went number one. And so you see your peers right. recognizing in real time the achievements in in a different way than, you know, it's not necessarily as meaningful as the phone call, but right. there's, a, there's an outward... Um, support system you know i vacillate between feeling totally cynical about social media likes um or comments Mm -hmm. and and the authenticity um i have a closed instagram it's my choice to be closed it's a lot of people a lot of friends in the industry and i but also there's this layer of voyeurism um and you know when someone has a big moment like someone who never likes comments in um and that can be uh, listen i think i would like to believe it. it's all authentic but some of it is um i think in a good way pride of ownership of one another's success is something i see a lot which is awesome but i think in a challenging way um people a lot of people you see a lot of people looking at well, it's almost like looking at what someone else is wearing or who someone else is working with or um and then it becomes like, why am I not in that room or doing that thing? Or my car is not that car. Or... Yeah, it's uh, look. I don't think that that's that new, is certainly the downside. But right? it is. Yeah, that's also a, you're comparing. There's you know that book Sapiens. I don't know. Someone if you know just this. told me about this oh, book. Oh, it's so good. They, I, but but you know the yeah. idea that you used to compare. You know, a hundred thousand years ago, you'd compare yourself to the fifty other people in your clan, and <laughs> you know. You're the only guy who's 30 years old, and there's one other guy, and maybe you're better looking than him, maybe not, but there are only two of you, right. so fine. You know, you're not comparing yourself <laughs> on a daily basis to models. You're not comparing right. yourself, you know, or the highlight reel nice of the, everybody. Yeah, it's, like I got good angles no and I got like not good angles, and that's yeah. so. You I know, only have good angles, right? So well, I can't, you're a better looking I, man than that's than why I, I can't but, relate. But you know what I'm saying is yeah. that you also look at it like nobody brags about what they failed at. 
It's like, oh my God, I signed this artist. It was a disaster. I mean, maybe the total disasters are some of those back war room discussions that people have, but more like I took a bet on this and it was, and I was totally wrong or so-and-so basically ghosted everybody or so-and-so has a drug problem or, and like no one's going to go out and volunteer that, that big, um, streaming success all of a sudden got signed and they spent tons of money and then it's off into the ether yeah it's not what we don't do that in some ways i wish it was required yeah that because you everybody would look at everybody your, a little yeah, differently uh, yeah as my dad <laughs> used to say he used to say the only mistake i ever made was buying an eraser so yeah um okay that's so good. that's very jewish um okay so uh you know you Skipping through some stuff, you end up recording Billy Man, the self-titled album. I did. And who, where did that come out? Um, A&M. Um, How did they hear you? They heard me through Rick Wake, and Rick Wake was, back in the day, he was a big pop producer. Um, he actually signed, he got together with this very wealthy woman who was a songwriter, uh, Denise Rich. And started yeah, this Denise. company. And she's lovely, by yeah. the way. She's always been a great person. She's a big supporter person. of the music industry. She's, she's yeah. a really special person. Yeah. And a special person. I, you know what? I'm, I'm upset with myself that I say this very rich woman. She loves music and is a songwriter herself. Yeah. But she yeah. entered in with resources that are just unimaginable to any That's normal right. person. And Rick was, a you know, he, he could spot all kinds of talent. And one was... Um, her resources, and they partnered together, and they had this company called W and R. And I must say that while I I can look back at that experience and be really critical of Rick and the way he did business, um, I wouldn't be here doing what I, I do know. if not for him believing in me. So I really try as I get older to to balance the scales in some yeah. ways retroactively to remind myself that somebody who takes a risk on you and nobody else does, um, that premium is, uh, that can be worth it. Um, but he had, uh, some would say he had both hands in the cookie jar uh, type of guy. But what he did do is he assembled an extraordinary group of songwriters. And it's shocking to me that he wound up not like losing all of that. Um because he was a really charismatic guy, but he championed me, took me to Al Cafaro, who was then the chairman of A&M. Um, and, uh, I made my first record. Um, and I don't, it's funny. It's still hard for me to believe that it did anything, but, but it was more that I got my education on the music business. And a lot of the people that I worked with at A&M and through that period are people that are still in my life. I'm still friends. Like Martin Kiersenbaum was my product manager. Mm. And Martin Kiersenbaum, you know, now manages Sting. And I remember when I was on tour opening for Sting and Martin was the product manager traveling with us. Um, and it's those kinds of relationships were born out of that time. Yeah. But... Uh, you release a few albums as an artist. Two albums. And the second one... Well, I had been going through personal stuff up during that whole era, and um, which made it clear to me that being on stage in front of people wasn't what I, was going to be important to me, and yeah. so I stopped that. And the second album, you want to talk about those things? Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I'm, I, I, I yeah, what, what were I, those things? Um, well, when I was twenty three, 
I was fixed up on a blind date with, uh, it was like one of those random things. I didn't even want to go. I had broken up with the girlfriend that I had before. You know the joke about what do you call a drummer without a girlfriend? What? Homeless. <laughs> you ever that? So I was like kind of, you know, I had been like living nowhere. And I had this great girlfriend named Nancy who worked at Sony uh, at the time. And then we broke up and it was, you know, for me, it was like the end of the world. And then I started... Um, I was writing, things were starting to work out with Rick and I was in it and I was fixed up with this, um, this girl was about five years older than me named Rima and, uh, we met on a blind date and we fell in love and I never imagined myself getting married or falling in love at that age, but I really, I fell in love with her and then, um, she and I were together and lived together and it was more serious. And then she uh, was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And um, and uh, she, I had been saving up everything to try to afford a ring, which is hard to do when you're, and um, totally. anyway, and it was, it was intense. And then when she was diagnosed, I'm, I didn't hesitate. I loved her. We got married two weeks later, and then she died nine months after that. And that was right in the heart of recording that one first album that I did. And um, and it was just a surreal time um, for all the reasons that anybody could imagine listening to this. But at the same time, um, if I didn't have music, if I didn't, if I wasn't able, like, able to air it out as a songwriter um and that experience i think i i don't know i don't know what would have happened i was not i wasn't in a good place and um but i i just focused everything on writing songs and the second album earthbound was really about that grief and it's is and that process but i met carol king i went to france for the the castle writer retreats and i met it was insane like that was greg wells and carol king Mm and um uh, Mark Hudson, Sarah Hudson's dad, um, and uh, oh gosh, it was like insane songwriters and Maya Sharp, and you just met all these people, and I just channeled everything I could into that. Um, and it was also, I look back and it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, it is what it is because it's your life, but I was sort of that young artist that got signed and worked his way up, and then like, everybody knew that I had lost my wife and I was really young. And, um, so it's sort of, I think about my brother Busby and I think about what we go through as human beings and dealing with grief and loss. Um, and I, I, I had no money. I didn't have family resource and I, so I really leaned into the music. Um, and it was a mess. I was a good hot mess for a minute. I mean, after that, it, you know, being able to write your way out of problems, which in through situations, is a, a big part of being a songwriter and learning to deal with real life issues by writing songs mm. is a big part of being an artist. I feel like, and over the next few years, clearly there becomes a momentum, more and mm. more cuts, more and more cuts, getting further in the co-writing thing into producing, mm. not just you know not just being in the room, but it looks like you have more and more songs on these projects, mm. eventually even working with, you know, Celine Dion and Hall & Oates and things like that. Mm. You know, big shift from being 
from releasing two albums with a record label that is questionably pushing anything. Yeah. You know, what point are you no longer worried about living in a car? Are you there yet? <laughs> um, Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love record. I had had, well, the first hit I ever wrote, because a lot of my hits, if I look back and I, I see like all the writers and there's so many amazing talents, um, but I was under this contract with Rick that really made it impossible for me to do much production and I didn't have any say like I would give him a song and I'd say like they're literally it's a true story I wrote a song with this guy Andy Marvel really talented guy Andy and I wrote the song called Junkie we love the song it's a weird song Rick Wake takes it and he's like I love it Ron Fair calls me at home which I, I don't I don't at the time it's yeah. not like I was getting tons sure. of calls from big A and R exactly. Yeah. And he was super lovely. He's like, I got this young singer. She'd be great on it. I would love to do that. I heard that song Junkie. She loves it. It's great. So I'm super excited. I call Rick. I'm like, Rick, I got a cut on this record. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm going to use that song for this project that I'm doing with Tommy uh, Matola. And I'm like, yeah, but this guy from RCA just called me. <laughs> he wants the song. It's really good. He's like, yeah, but, you know, this is Tommy loves this. And, you know, you know there's people that they like, they sort of over name drop their mentors it's like they have to say the name of the person at least once in every sentence to remind you huh. of their juice yeah exactly and um and uh i was and but i had no power and he just said i'm taking the song and literally the band was called i'm not making this up unheard of that was the name of the band yeah anyway cut to like this gives you an example of what it was like i like Bob Jameson, who was the chairman of RCA back in the day, invites me as, like, new songwriter to go to this showcase for this artist. And I see this artist, this young girl gets up and just sings the shit out of everything. And, like, the whole place, and this is super old school. It was, like, all the, like, McCluskey promo radio guys that when that, that was, like, Chicago was the power base of radio. Um, a lot of nice people, but it was, like, intense. And then I'm, I was kind of having anxiety in social situations in part because like I had lost a wife. I was really young. I was just starting. I didn't want to like mess anything up by saying the wrong thing. And I sat outside of the room and who sits down next to me, but the singer who's just crushed the place. And we're both kind of sitting there looking at each other. And, uh, I said, you know, you really, you crushed it up there. That was awesome. And she said, thank you. I said, you know, I wrote this song that you were going to cut called junkie and she's like oh my god i love that song that would be i i wanted it so bad like what happened i said i i'm embarrassed i don't want to tell you and she was like well i love that song and i was like thanks christina aguilera nice to meet you true story <laughs> and like i like and that's part of the you know the i want to say it's a little bit of the game of being a songwriter but i think what i got out of it was i just had to keep writing i had to keep going and um and the momentum that happened started. Three is Family was the first song. Um, it was a totally random pop song in the UK that was top 10. I wrote it by myself. Um, actually, Rick Wake found out his girlfriend was pregnant and they weren't married. And I wrote the song, was like, is really cool, soulful song. And it was the dumbest song ever. It was The chorus was one and one is two, two is me and you, two plus one is three, three is family. And it was like, it was Barney, basically. And... It just was it, massive. It sounds like a song that you can also write when you're right. on a street. And <laughs> was, I mean, like, there's that thing. You learn rhyme schemes that are really simple. And right. it's like, you know, 
you're speaking to those two people. Well, I think it was. Translates. I was two weeks before filing for bankruptcy, yeah. and I got a performance royalty check for that song, which changed my life. So the answer. So that's the moment. Was that was that was a bigger moment, and then the Celine record came out and sold. This is one album sold thirty six million copies. Yeah. Like a major label group right now would be really happy if their whole roster yeah. sold thirty six million. Um, I mean, you, everyone always. It's easy to glorify other people's, you know, other generations, yeah. but it's hard not to look at that, those numbers, and and feel like if you came up after that, you know, you missed the boat. Especially if you had album tracks. I mean, mm. that at at nine point one cents per song per album, oh, no, thirty six no, million. Think you just made over a million dollars yeah. on just you know, and. Coming from nothing almost, to that, two point seven million dollars more than that, because thirty six. Mm-hmm. So you're talking really more like three point three million dollars grossing on an album track, right? But then you look at that divided by writers, publishers, well, even just divided by, or that. divided by deal terms. Oh, right, and then you'd have con- control. I mean, I don't know where the camera is for yeah, me to give yeah, the cold exactly. stare to, but yeah, that exactly. was uh, um, set there. okay. So, <laughs> um, I want to talk about Pink because. You end up, you know, you're on. She had already released music at this point. Yeah. By the time you guys met, but why is it that you guys have worked together for four or five different albums? I mean, six albums. I 18, don't know. Eighteen years. Eighteen years. But I mean, there there are a lot of. I've worked with a lot of artists where you work with them one album, maybe you get on another album. Mm. Maybe it's even residual work from the first album that gets mm. on the next album, mm. but it's. Seems pretty rare that you get um, a relationship where you just keep going back. What is it about your relationship with Pink in particular that that's so special? I I think that I had been doing well, and and when I look back at the first album I made, and I and I can't listen to it. It did a lot for me. A&M did a lot for me. The people there did a lot for me. But the album did more for me in sort of laying the groundwork for my career than it did commercially, of course. Um, but Pink's manager, who managed her with Roger Davies at the time, was a guy called Craig Logan, who, like me and you, Ross, was is multi-hyphenate guy. He yeah. was manager. He was in Bross, a boy band. Um, and he heard my first album which was sent to him by the publisher for Rick Wake, a guy called Andy Furman, mm-hmm. really charismatic, yeah. really great guy, um, sent it to him. And two years later, and by the way, this is proof that when people write songs or make records and they don't think anybody hears it, you never know who hears it. Yeah. And basically Craig heard it. And then um, Jim Velutato at Sony ATV at the time, who's also a really good guy, um, and I was always, you know, bitching at my publishers, you know, squeaky wheel, like, let's do more, let's do more, which is, you know, what's required. And what do I do? And somehow Craig called and said, I really love Billy's album. And he's from Philadelphia. And I think he and Alicia would get along. And at the same time, I had been working on, you know, songs and ideas. I keep a long list of song titles with me all the time. I either eat now I email it to myself. Um, and then I, we were fixed up to like get together for a coffee and, um, and we met in the Valley here and she had already had, you know, the success, you know, really 
deep success of the first album like that she commanded and like we sat down and it was whiskey and cigarettes at 11 in the morning mm. um and then i naturally played her the, and it went on and we both grew up with a very similar vibe and the philadelphia sensibility and um and i played her what was the working tape for god as a dj and i had that chorus um and the track i did with this guy uh johnny uh johnny most davis um and uh, who's a really talented guy and i played it for her and the verses weren't like i had sort of dummy verse ideas and then i played it to her and she was like i fucking love this and then i went back and started working on the lyrics with her and we finished it together and and i still it's like that song is one of those that's very much like my career it's like i'm it's not like my versions of the copyrights are like songs like that that wound up in like Mean Girls and it's like kind of a staple song for me in my catalog but it's and it was a hit in Europe and it did well here but it really kicked off the relationship and then we just I don't know we became really like sibling friends I want to talk about your um executive you know you it, you know we were talking about being multi-hyphenated and whatnot and here you become an executive you you know what? Here's a kid who has no education in mm. in no the, business that school, bi- uh, no business school, and you're put in a position of, you know, um, with a fancy three letter title, mm. and you're a songwriter. How did you balance that, and how did you balance the entrepreneurship of of being a, I mean, a songwriter? It was well. I mean, I should probably go back. Just one step, because while I started writing songs and having traction and having hits, I really, I would say to any songwriter, you have to go where the passion is. And for me, Europe and international was where I like found myself. I was doing a promo tour for my album and went to Stockholm and I loved it there. And I remember Rick saying like, get back to New York. Well, what are you doing in Sweden? I'm like, there is like real shit happening in Stockholm right now. I'm like, I'm not leaving. I met Dennis Pop. I met Hasse Breitholtz from BMG and um, a kind of shady manager guy that was looming around there that I thought was a friend, wasn't a friend. But but didn't end up dead in the river. Um, there's still time. Uh, no, yeah. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. No, I, let me put it this way. I... I, I all of those characters, like I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Um, but wow, what a what a yeah. movie that would be. Um, but I I loved Sweden and I spent a lot of time there. And I worked with Robin when she was 15. Yeah. And like to give you a sense of the leap, it's like I worked with Robin when she was 15. I signed her at, to EMI when she was 30. And then uh, you know, it's like I think the long relationships are the best thing about that I can say in terms of my calling card is that like the relationships I have with the artists are. You know, they're really important to me and healthy to me. Um, But I started loving the business when I realized how contractually compromised I was. Even with a good lawyer, even with, uh, I had no leverage. But I didn't understand the business. And, you know, I say to every new songwriter, you're, you are the CEO of a startup. You are the startup. And that can go in a lot of directions, like any startup, where you end up and where you start are oftentimes very different places. And what I'll say is like a publisher, is you're a publisher, Ross. I mean, it's like you're an, you're an angel investor. You're, you own a minority share of possibilities for that person. And I didn't have the vocabulary understanding, but I had the ambition to learn it. And so I bought every book. I mean, there's like Don Passon's book, but I... I 
bought yeah, contract so books. Yeah. And like I was yeah. just like insatiable reading, wanting to understand the language in these agreements and how how just just the inner workings is the best I could. And then I started like obsessing over finding new talent. And I at the time was being managed by Bob Doyle, who's Garth Brooks's manager and partner for years, who's an amazing mentor to me and always a gentleman and a, a believer in me, but allowed me to explore what being an entrepreneur was like. And it was a short, we're still, I still consider him a friend and I, his kids and grandchildren. And he's still like one of the, he's one of the quiet goats of the business. But um, I learned the business from him. Like the first spreadsheet I ever saw <laughs> to sober me up, he handed to me and I was like, <gasps> my eyes crossed. And I was like, okay, I need to learn this too. Um, but I really wanted to develop talent. And I started my first company stealth in 2001 and i had two goals one find new talent that i can develop pretty much one at a time and two come up with brand partnerships for artists when i can to take away the leverage the financial leverage that labels have so if you could get someone a deal with a brand that felt aligned then it would get put more money in the artist's pocket and the label wouldn't necessarily control it and then the labels hired like i remember columbia records hired dave Santinello, who's like a really bright guy probably one of the pioneers of branding um and uh it you know it just changed the dynamic but i love the business and then i found really talented people and um and that's the time i met teddy geiger um and um who I'm just immensely proud of. Yeah. I mean, uh, we had dinner last year and we were talking about something and I, I'm not his dad, but like, I feel sometimes like his dad. Um, and now I feel like her dad yeah. and like embracing that. Uh, that's one example of, I mean, John Ryan went to high school with Teddy. I managed John for a minute, although I didn't really manage. I like, remember talking to John Ryan's dad on the phone and him <laughs> telling me all these things and but John Ryan was super successful and uh I I actually I discovered Emma Stone the same time I discovered Teddy um and I'm still these are all people who are still in my life and I I think I got really addicted to the idea of finding things way early and believing in things way early and that is my addiction is believing in people early and that, it was amazing to have a successful company. But when I went to EMI after I sold Stealth, selling it was great for my family. And obviously, it's, 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 it was a nice moment. Um, and the people that worked with me, I mean, Liz Baylog, who worked at Nick Bolton, was there. I couldn't afford to hire real people, meaning like executives so i basically went to the assistant of people i wish i could hire yeah. so like nick bolton was the day-to-day -day assistant for johnny wright like if you could hire anybody to handle artists it would be johnny wright he's the greatest so i i remember calling johnny and i was like listen i, I hope you don't mind but i'm <laughs> i want to take nick with me because i had worked with the backstreet yeah. boys and whomever period um but it was a great group of people um tori catalano who's teddy's cousin worked with me then and now he has a company in silver lake called the colors you like that makes documentaries and videos yeah it was just all this young talent 
And I was sort of like leading a band of misfits, no different than I was when we went to the Battle of the Bands with our crew and racked up, you know, doing well in Philly. But that then became, I wanted more. And I had a VC firm that had offered me money to scale stealth because the brand deals were also secretly lucrative. Um, And I called it stealth because as a writer... The executives in the music business, they don't really like creative people doing business. It's like, you stay in your lane, and we'll be in our room smoking cigars or going to the, our black tie shit, and then, like, and you stay, and you're, you guys are emotional and, and crazy, and, you know, you know Ross, he's nice, but he's an autist. You know, you can hear that shit hmm. when you're not in the room. It's like, he's mercurial, he's a creative, a creative. It's one of my favorite um, yeah. sort of backhanded insults. It's like... Seeing, by the way, as an aside, seeing songwriters become increasingly more savvy is one of those secret joys of today's Hmm. business in general. But so when I got to EMI, it was very much that, and it was really hard. I mean, I want to tell you that it was like, oh, it was great. I went in, I'm in the boardroom. It was was so hard. I I have never felt... No matter the worst neighborhood in Philly that I could walk through, where literally I knew I was going to get in a fight I, I, it was inevitable with more than one person. I never felt, I never could hear the sharpening of blades louder than when I walked in at that high an altitude at this really prestigious, important company um, from people, many of whom I knew and were my quote-unquote friends or people that I like knew because, you know, if you know how it is, you go into a room, whether it's an A&R person or someone, and you give them shit that they can sell that makes them look good, they love you. But I was also a dude that, you know, six months prior, for sure, I like spent more time in the waiting room waiting for someone in that building to actually show up on time for the meeting than for me in the meeting. Yeah. I mean, even more so, I remember I almost got signed by a guy named Jamie Nelson who's now, uh, 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 he's still an A&R, a really great A&R person in the UK, in London. And I maybe he was at London Records or something at the time. And I remember he was like, man, I, I, he just couldn't get it done. And I didn't see him. And when I was at EMI, then I'm at sea level. And I remember having my assistant call him to come up and see me in my office at Wright's Lane. And I just like, it was one of those moments where, and he was a gentleman, by the way, but... That was how drastic the shift was. And you go from a business that's like a, an eight-figure business to, you know, you're talking about a P&L of three-quarters of a billion dollars right. and 34 countries. And I can say openly, like, I wasn't set up to win. It is, I think, a miracle that I turned the corner and had so many hits and worked with so many artists during that period as an executive. And I think I get criticized by some of our industry friends because I never did PR I never put spin on the ball, um, but it was it was harsh. It was really harsh. Like you saw country club politics, like of, of wealthy people, and I just never saw that before. Yeah. But once I got past that, I took refuge in all the working people in the company, and they are amazing people, and I am still very close with all of them. And you, I made it a point to know. The receptionist, who their partner was, if they had a birthday or someone has a kid or gets mad. Like, I just, that's, I think, a Philadelphia sensibility. It's like, I was just, like, happy with the working people of the business. And then 
as soon as you have one, I, David Guetta was mine. I put everything on Breaking David and people told me I was crazy. Um, I remember begging for the M&P allocation and uh, one of the bank, terra firma banking folks said, you know, you're suggesting we're going to invest a million pounds on an artist over 40 who neither sings nor dances. It was like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, it's like, but, um, but I also remember David in the studio in my guest house playing me, I got a feeling before it was done and me thinking and telling him, this is going to change your whole life. Um, so I had these moments that, that those headwinds were hard, but the wins like Teddy Geiger's, album debuting top 10 and showing being a part of raising his gifts to the world is amazing and actually you know sort of putting a bow on that like knowing that i have a song on a the last pink album and that teddy she has songs on the last pink album yeah, is like cool. a no, it's amazing for me but all the folks i like have a real I, I, there's so many writers like Hip hop, like Super Mario. It's, this is this guy was a janitor in a mental institution when I signed him, and now he's like on every hip hop record. Is one of he's a genius. Or um, I could just go through a list of folks that I feel so proud to be a small sure. part in helping lift them. And I tried to put that into the spirit of being an executive at a larger company. I'm going, we're going to go to the next segment, which is going to be five for five. I'm going to list five things and just tell me the first thing that comes off the top of your head with these things. Um, some things that we we did touch on, some things we didn't. Let's start with the the most obvious, Alicia Pink. Authentic. People know who she stands for because she is what she stands for. and And I think that when I think of any artist who thinks about how do I, how am I successful, her hard work, not just ambition, but her absolute like vision for herself, clarity and self-possession, she is, she proves to me that if you want to be a successful artist in the long term, your fans have to know who you are and what you stand for and they need to be able to count on you for that for the over the course of your career. And I think if you look at any successful artist, you're going to find a culture around who they are that is embedded into everything they do, no matter how they, how they pivot creatively, it's consistent. And she is, she, is a, she is a model for that. And I would say, which I think I would say first, she's a mom. She is a mom first. Yeah. And I... I, I I, I can't say enough beautiful things about her. Philadelphia. I love that I'm from there. I'll never live there again. Mm. I love that. Um, let's go with the Music Modernization Act. I mean, let me start by saying Michelle Lewis and you and... Adam Dorn and just all the writers that are unionizing to move the needle and David Israelite. Um, I, I think this is, we've been uphill and I don't think that uphill battle is going to change. I think, 
I think this is going to be a long fight. Yeah. And I think it's what it did is that it memorialized the need to modernize, but converting a dinosaur into a Tesla is like, it's, I don't think the glide path to parity is clear. And I think everybody's going to have to buckle up and, uh, and prepare. Yeah. Sorry, that's not... No, it's a good... Look, There's there are some parts to the modernization mm. of music that's going to get complicated if terrestrial radio ever actually goes away, mm. how significant that will be mm. if we end up in a battle with restaurants, we're screwed. Mm. There are a lot of things that songwriters have as an uphill battle and parody. I don't see how that happens anywhere than licensing um, because of, you know, by licensing, I mean, you know, performance licensing mm. where you actually have a television show, a license for a TV show or commercial is the only place where there's true parody, mm. where it's 50% masters, 50% publishing. Um, that, and also consumers would have to change because there are streaming platforms that have better splits, but consumers aren't willing to, even if it was free, consumers aren't willing to switch when they get used to a certain behavioral way of listening to music like mm. Spotify and Apple. It would be hard for them to skip out on that. Even if there was a, a free um, platform, I don't know if our, our situation as songwriters is going to motivate the average consumer to switch their behavior in order to but why, provide us. I, but I would say why... I don't think that the consumer, like uh-huh. a music fan, I think the architecture needs to shift on the business end. Get, how do you get the architecture to shift when the owners of the the streaming services are aren't incentivized other than by legal means? I mean, obviously a longer conversation, but yeah. I would say um, Dina Lapolte yes. was clearly in the best way ruthless about advocating yes i think waiting it out is something that big companies and establishment does really well they are patient we are not i mean yeah and, i mean this is the the, the nra does this yeah like we see I, it every all the time you oh, see like exactly. you know so change 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 silence right. silence like silence, th- how many kids are getting camp. gunned down yeah, how many totally. i mean seriously and yet we still don't have movement. And I yeah. I think that that's an, a really good parallel. Yeah. So I think... I mean, that's why, I mean, well, it'll be really interesting. The next few years, I mean, you can say this always in the music industry, <laughs> the next few years, but the next few years will indicate a lot because the MLC actually mm-hmm. potentially working the, you know, the how the CRB rates solidify, yeah. you know, all these things are really going to change... Um, what direct they will signify what direction we'll actually yeah, go in. But remember this. I mean, this this is a captain obvious for some people and maybe not for others. But if you look at it just purely from an economic standpoint, it's such a conflict of the ad- those who are meant to be the advocates for the songwriters, publishers. Yeah, are so. I mean, take a company that is a publishing company that realizes that the value is in the vertical asset ownership. So they open their master's division and they start flooding resources into the master's division because they realize that's where the majority of that streaming income, et cetera, can, can come from. And then ultimately what happens is they start, they're not thinking in terms of the 
the microtransactions that we live in as songwriters. They're thinking the macrotransaction is the whole of the asset. So they become actually less motivated to lean, I'm not saying all, but to lean in the direction of the songwriter when they realize they've altered their business towards the lion's share of what that revenue is. So do they really care? Because they're looking at it as a whole. I mean, on the... On the NMPA board, you know, when you're in that room with the heads of the mm. publishers and there's certain things that I can disclose and some things that I cannot. Right. But, you know, that that conversation, there there are very candid conversations amongst that, that group of people. And um, still the publisher's main interest is... Is still protecting copyrights because still there's still value in that. But yes, I understand that Universal mm. as a whole, Sony as a whole, Warner as a whole, some of these larger corporations that have a lot of money in masters have less, in, you know, incentive to really alter the that parody. Because why rock the boat right. if you have it? But you know, there are some other avenues. We still have performance rights organizations that are built to collect on terrestrial radio, collecting mm-hmm. on things like digital, you know. Uh, but even look, radio, like there are some there are percentages that are getting lost all over the place. No, but look at like Sound Exchange, neighboring rights, all yes. these other. I mean, songwriters a lot don't even realize yeah. that if they play guitar on a record that's successful at radio in yeah. Europe, that there's revenue there and it just sits. Here's, here's the 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 best advice I'll give on this thing is what you just said. You know, is the if 5% of masters goes to union fees, if you want to actually make money on the masters, maybe negotiating for the point is is less advantageous than negotiating for the background vocal and guitar playing credit. I mean, ironically, that could very well be a strategy for somebody, but I think it all... I think it all view it here like pointing to yourself. I think it's like it is important to that there's all these things left on the table. And Absolutely. I mean, look, it's a process, like right. you were saying. It's a mountain. Was so, that was that five things? Did we? No, no, no. Sorry, I, I saw. I, it's important to talk about. No, not, I, not everybody I, talk. Not everybody's as invested and wants to talk about things like you know where the industry is on this yeah, sort of yeah. scientific way. But speaking of science, autism. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, I, I if I look back and think what's like the secret sauce of anything in my life, um, it's my family life. I mean, I I found love, I lost love, and then when I found it again, I was not gonna, I was never gonna not make that priority for me. And um, and anybody that knows me knows my wife Jenna, um, and I'm very, I don't know, it's like. I always talk about my wife, my my kids, um, and I. When my oldest son Jasper is seventeen now, um, and by the way, there are dozens and dozens, hundred. I mean, there's so many people in our industry that have children with autism, um, and when my son was first diagnosed. I remember a big manager at the time, and I had started to have like Jessica Simpson. I did with you that song was number one at pop radio, and then the pink stuff was coming out, and I was like really getting traction. And they were like, you know, you shouldn't tell anybody about your son because you may not get work because people will think you're distracted, and it really messed with my head. Um, and you're probably thinking, who on earth would say that? And I'll tell you later, but mm. I remember really. And basically coming from eating food out of a can in my car, I was 
I was really nervous and I then I had a family and um so just wrapping your arms around it is a thing but then once I started to see the numbers and see how many children are diagnosed with autism and just the growth of diagnosis it was weird I mean, it wasn't, and it's still happening, you know. It was, when my son was diagnosed, it was one in 200 kids. Today, it's one in 43. It's like one in 34 or 38 boys. Somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah, but, Uh. on the spectrum. But the thing is, is that a huge chunk of that community is nonverbal. There's a high-functioning community that is, you know, and I believe that neurodiversity, and I've learned um, in some ways, you know, through saying the wrong things, how important the neurodiversity movement is. And at the same time, um, there are a lot of families who have kids who are, like my son is nonverbal, but I, my, my son is my greatest counsel um, because I'm so deeply grounded in his reality every day. And for a kid that was untethered and unsupervised, um, I'm a faith-based guy, so I'd say, you know, I think God gave me a, a son that I would balance the universe by always, always, always being connected to my kids and being vigilant and and t- taking care. But it changed me. It's like nobody, humility, it's accessible to all of us in an instant, right? We don't know how much time we have. We don't know what can happen. But I really saw who my friends were on a different level. Yeah. Um, and my wife and I saw, you know, who we were because it, there's a high divorce rate anyway for people, but for children with autism, I think statistically it's like 80% plus divorce rate. Um, and we went on and, you know, I have four children now. I have, my boys are 17 and f- 16 and, um, and then my girls are 12 and five and I and I I love my wife, and she's amazing. And she started a an app that's sort of Tinder for special needs moms, except not romantic Tinder, but to and isolation is called Wolf and Friends. Um, but I, you know, it's it's humility. You you go into a public place with your child who is going to make noises, and people will stare and say things. Or if my son has a problem someone will turn and say why can't you control your kid or something and like i'm a really big guy so i have to you know my lawyer once said to me like you put your hands in your pockets because i'm i'm such a big person that um my wife says all the time you know you don't see you you hug like a bear but you scare like a bear and i don't uh-huh. see myself in that way but it's so i think that made me better it increased my eq it made me a better songwriter I think those challenges make us, I mean, if you answer the call to them, they can make us deeper. Final uh, final person being faith-based, we've got to talk about Busby, who you and I are very close with. Oh. It's a very strange thing for me because immediately I think of Busby and I think of Jess, his wife, who I don't, I, she's in my thoughts all the time. I experienced loss and grief and I didn't have the responsibility of children and it's their gifts. Those, those kids are gifts and the friends like you and other people, um, he, he, he was 
I remember going to lunch with him once in the city, and we we would laugh a lot, basically telling crazy stories about A and R experiences or executive experience that like it was sort of like true confessions of like did you know did you ever blah blah and it was it would be hilarious and we were laughing and we sat at a diner in Manhattan near where the music companies were and we sat at a table next to this is this to me is busby of all next to someone who's a manager a successful young manager in the business who's real full of themselves sat at the table next to us and spent the entire meal trashing people like with just ugly grapefruit spoon methodology mm-hmm. and he and I sat and had lunch and didn't talk we just looked at each other with big shit eating grins on our faces <laughs> one this guy has no idea who's sitting next yeah. to him and two in total disbelief that this is how someone would spend their time and three at the end looking at one another and saying are you are you going to tell him 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 and um i was talking to busby about um alex iono who's an artist i've like who's now has an eight-year career very quietly unbeknownst to the music industry that's looking for what's there. Um, and Busby was always someone I'd go to and say, hey, what are your thoughts on this? And he was a big fan of Alex's. And I remember um, talking to him. That was the point of the lunch. I was going to be like, hey, man, I, I want to just pick your brain. And we were talking about stuff. We didn't talk. We left the place. We went to a park. We sat on a bench and we prayed together. It was one of the most... And when I say prayed together, I, we literally looked at each other. We didn't. We never commented on that lunch. We never commented on who the person was. Um, but we were kind of like disgusted by the whole thing. And so all we could think to do was pray. Yeah. And we were, I want to say it was like on 23rd Street. It was like Hamilton Park or whatever. And we sat on the bench and the two of us and we held hands and and we prayed for the guy. That's my friend. Yeah. He was an extraordinary person. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing this. Oh. You know, um, shout out to Brett Stair, our uh, mutual friend. Um, we could talk about Brett for a long time. He gets guy. many shout outs on this, and uh, I love that. Um, but thank you for doing this. Thank you for being here on no, New Yorker. What you're in doing LA, is so awesome. Thank you. And I just the only thing I would say is, I just hope that when people start thinking about like having a hit, that they don't let other people set the goalposts because they'll just keep moving them. Yeah. And just like enjoy it. This is a this is an amazing privilege to be able to write songs, and you don't have to be signed to anybody to do it. Yeah, you don't need, just because somebody tells you like they knight you. Oh, you, this is great! It's I've written so many hit songs that no one's ever heard, and so have you. And then some of the songs I never thought would be or should be became hits. So who's to judge? So just enjoy it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, from one multi-hyphenated uh, <laughs> person to another, I appreciate it. Thank no, you I love this. seeing what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist. 
or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.